according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. It is cold in here, isn't it? Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. What you're looking at there on the screen, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Mary and Martha's hospitality. This is episode number nine in the Galilean, or not the Galilean, the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ. Episode number nine, Mary and Martha's hospitality. It's actually our third session in this episode. We'll, uh, we've got some visitors this morning. We'll bring you up to speed. And you probably heard the story before, maybe. It's, this is such a well-known Bible story. Even unbelievers have heard this story before, which is interesting. So, uh, kind of fun when you get to like walking on water and things, and everybody knows that, you know. All right. Before we do begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word and for the abundant blessings that you continue to pour forth upon us, Father. We've had two prayer times already and a a wonderful time of fellowship and reunion. We just thank you for the, the royal family of God and for the love that we have for one another in Christ. Father, we look to you now to guide and direct our study that you might hedge us about with your wall of protection. Uh, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit would be actively guiding us into even the deep things of God. Uh, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, I mentioned last week I would kind of like to rename this and uh, just cross off the word Mary, right? It's not Mary and Martha's hospitality, it's Martha's hospitality. Martha is the one who offered the invitation. Martha's the one who brought Jesus into her home. Martha's the one that was all worked up about what was going on in the kitchen. Mary was in Bible class. <laughs> all right, so we can call this Martha's hospitality and Mary's Bible class. So uh, reading from Luke chapter 10, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Where's Mary in that verse? All right. Mary's not there. Mary didn't invite. Mary didn't. Mary's not under any obligation to do any cooking, cleaning, anything. She didn't invite the guy in. As far as I'm concerned. I mean, in my book, Martha made the invitation. All right. Maybe that's just me. All right. Now, she had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. And, uh, and so here we are. Now, Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. She has a question, but she's already pre-answered the question, and she has the solution, and we'll be looking at that here this morning. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. The real contrast in this passage comes in between verse 41 and 42, and we have a very vivid, sharp contrast between the so many things and the one thing. And this is... Uh, really to the core of not only this chapter, but it helps us to define the Bible itself. It helps us to, de to define God's plan, God's purpose. It really becomes, a, it becomes a, an illustration of the whole Bible when you're contrasting so many things versus one thing. And that's what I hope to, uh, to take you through here this morning. Only one thing is necessary. There is only one necessary thing. And Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. All right, so these are the verses we're dealing with, five short verses, and uh, we'll see how far we get through them here today. Uh, under point one, there's only four issues we're going to give you out of this. There's some subpoints, but four main points for your outline. And we start with Martha. A certain woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. And uh, we did the background on this a couple weeks ago. I'll just quickly run through it again. She is the only Martha in the New Testament. Uh, I, do, I do accept that this is the same Mary and Martha that we have in John 11 and 12 uh, with a brother named Lazarus in, uh, in Bethany. Uh, you can't absolutely prove that, but I think it's consistent in any way. Uh, 
this is the one and only Martha, unless, of course, the other one is a different one, <laughs> in which case you've got two. Uh, and, they, and if you have two, they both have sisters named Mary, not unusual, common name. Uh, and the Mary and Martha in Luke 11 and Luke 12, they have a brother named Lazarus, the, the Lazarus who died and, and the Lord brought back in the, uh, the resurrection and life chapter. She uh, welcomed him, and we did a little bit of a word study on hupadecami. We'll go back into that this morning, but hupadecami, the aspects of hospitality. If you are presently praying over your giftedness, your spiritual giftedness, and uh, the uh, gift of mercy showing and the ministry of hospitality is something that uh, you have had under consideration then this is a passage that will be a part of your training. This is a passage that will be a part of your curriculum, and it should be a part of your prayer life as you consider. And we understand that consideration is the first step. You go from consideration to conviction to confirmation to consecration and the different levels there where you work your way through your giftedness and your ministry. So I know there are folks that are thinking about hospitality as a ministry and the different gifts that actually can apply towards the hospitality ministry. So this should be a passage. And the ones you see on the screen, uh, Luke 19.6, another hospitality episode. Uh, if you're very short, you might have to climb a tree. And, uh, and if Jesus catches you up there in the tree, then he'll tell you to come down because he has to go to your house for uh, for Bible class, and that's the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. But it's another text you will incorporate in your curriculum for training your gift and your ministry in the realm of hospitality. Acts 17:7, hospitality there has consequences because Jason was hosting Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy in his home in Thessalonica. And when the riots started forming and Paul and Silvanus had to escape out of town, uh, Jason had to actually put up some cash. He had to post a bond, a pledge, that said that Paul and Sylvanus wouldn't come back to town again. <laughs> so there's another aspect of hospitality. You can realize, you know what? There might be a price to pay in hospitality. When you are identifying with the body of Christ, in particular back in the Roman Empire, where uh, associations with Christians could be viewed as something illegal and could be could have legal consequences. Maybe we've got similar persecution coming up in upcoming days, perhaps. See, so uh, anyway, keep these things in mind. Finally, James two twenty five passage there that you can look at that makes use of the term hupadecami. And one thing we want to learn what James teaches us about in our hospitality and so forth is that uh, we don't want to be showing the favoritism towards folks that are coming in here and visiting. We don't want to get uh, distracted in terms of uh, being hospitable towards those we think uh, can repay it or those we think can uh, we can get something from them because they're loaded kind of a thing. That is the wrong attitude in terms of hospitality. So anyway, this was our introduction to Martha. Secondly, we get introduced to Mary. And if you ever want to have fun someday, just break out a Unger's Bible Dictionary or uh, one of these Bible Encyclopedia kind of things um, and open up to the Mary page and you'll find six or seven different Marys listed there and, and keep your Marys straight. Um, the Mary that we have here is one out of six New Testament Marys or seven if the Mary and Martha in John are different from this Mary and Martha. okay? If they're different Marys and Marthas, then that means we have a total of seven Marys in the New Testament. I think she's one and the same. I think that these sisters uh, are the same that we see in the Gospel of John. Uh, the name Maria or Mariam, it's not even a Greek name. Uh, the Greek uh, brings it into the Greek. It's a transliteration from the Hebrew, Miriam, very popular name throughout the ages. Miriam was the sister of Aaron and Moses, and uh, quite a few of the, of the Jewish girls would be named uh, Miriam uh, because of that. So pretty common. But uh, the other Marys, of course, can you name some of the other Marys in the New Testament? Magdalene, okay. Mother of Jesus. Yeah, that's usually the one people think of first. Okay. Magdalene second. What other Marys were there? The lesser known ones. All right. <laughs> so get your uh, Unger's Bible Dictionary out or whatever you have and, and uh, have some fun with that. Now, she was not distracted. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was uh, seated for teaching. And... Uh, 
I think what's remarkable about this vocabulary is that it's so unusual. Uh, it's a compound. It's a double compound. Parakathedzomai. Your basic term, kathedzo, is to sit. Uh, you put a para prefix in front of it to sit beside. And since the object of the verb is feet, she's sitting beside the feet. And the only way to sit beside the feet is really to sit at the feet. And so we have the idiom for what it is. If you are seated at somebody's feet, that means that you are their disciple. As Paul uh, said in his childhood, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. All right. In other words, Paul would claim Gamaliel for his lineage, for his doctrinal lineage, his heritage of teaching. All right. And as a pretty common term, it was the place to be as far as the rabbis were concerned. And uh, even out of the Mishnah, we have a quotation there that applies to that. We shared it last week, but it's worth looking at again. Uh, Yose ben Yozer of Serida and Yose ben Yohanan of Jerusalem received it from them. And then it says, uh, here's what Yose ben Yozer has to say. He says, let your house be a gathering place for sages. This is, a, this is honorable. If your house is the house that, a, that a, a sage or a rabbi or a Bible teacher picks, your house, out of all the other houses in the village, wow, that's... I mean, if you can't be a rabbi yourself, for your house to be the, the, the venue, that's, uh, that's an honor. Let your house be a gathering place for sages and wallow in the dust of their feet and drink in their words with gusto. All right, so that's the, uh, those were the words there. And it was, it was a mark of honor. It was a place to be as far as the rabbis were concerned, but it was not available to women as a rule. Not available to women as a rule. And as we ran out of time last week, we took you through a fairly lengthy article on the role of women in uh, the first century, in, in Jesus' day. And in the uh, synagogue culture where it was vital for the men to be learning the Torah, vital for the men to be learning the things of the law and so forth, uh, that was not the case for women. And some of the, uh, you were all laughing, which is good, at the end of the session last week, because uh, some of the things were rather outrageous. I mean, and they were so outrageous, you couldn't help but laugh at them, right, in terms of, of those things. The, uh, the sad part is, is that um, that is still very much so the, the mindset under Islam in the Quran. Everything we read last week that was a feature of rabbinic Judaism, in, including uh, the female um, deficiencies uh, of, of mind, okay, that, uh, that's, that's still incorporated in the Quran. That is still, to this day, the global practice of Muslims, uh, which is why uh, it takes the, the, the testimony of a woman in court is half that of a man. It takes the, the testimony of two women to equal the testimony of one man under the Quran, under Islam. Reason being is because women are so deficient mentally that they can't uh, they really testify to the truth of anything. So that's the that's the uh, the aspect of it. So it relates to what we saw last week in the uh, theological dictionary of the New Testament. Name that tune. Okay, I didn't catch that. Okay. The um, I'm just glad it's never been me. Not yet. I keep praying, Lord. I'm going to check my phone here just in case. The uh, <laughs> Even more embarrassing than having my phone ring in class is uh, having my congregation find out what my ringtones are. All right. Now, I've already got it planned out. The day my phone rings in Bible class, I'm going to answer it right here live in front of everybody. And I'm going to ask them why they're not in church. All right, these were uh, the paragraphs we read in terms of uh, the, the woman's role in Judaism. A uh, woman is openly despised. This is why, and, and I think if we don't review this from time to time, we lose track of it. Or maybe we never knew it in the first place. And so we don't fully understand that when Jesus allowed women to follow his ministry, when he allowed women to sit at his feet, when he allowed women to anoint his feet and, and his hair and different things, how radical Jesus was. In, in Even talking to that, that Samaritan woman at the well, the disciples come back and they, he's talking to a woman. <laughs> what, what's he doing that for? Right? 
So uh, we, we went through some of these quotes. We didn't get to all of them, but they're, they're kind of fun. Happy is he whose uh, children are males, and woe to him whose children are females. Okay, that's a quotation from the Talmud. Um, the honorable title of daughter of Abraham is very rare in rabbinic literature compared with the corresponding son of Abraham. Son of Abraham is everywhere. Son of Abraham is, is the title. The Jewish male is, uh, you know, the, the item of God's blessing. Women are greedy, inquisitive, lazy, and vain. That's according to the, uh, the, the Midrash commentary on Genesis. Uh, later on, it gets repeated and they add the word frivolous at the end of greedy, inquisitive, lazy, vain, and frivolous. Ten cob, and I don't know what a cob is, if it's a gallon or a, it's probably, you know, half a shekel or something. I don't know. Ten cob, whatever that is. Ten cob of empty-headedness have come upon the world, nine having been received by women (laughs) and one by the rest of the world. So, you know, there's ten kinds of stupid in the world and women are to blame for nine of them. Right. I think, let's turn that around. There's ten kinds of stupid in the world and, and... Nine and a half of them are men. (laughs) The quote by Hillel. Hillel, remember Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel? Gamaliel sat at the feet of Hillel. Hillel was was as legendary to Gamaliel as Gamaliel was to Paul. Here's his quote. Many women, much witchcraft. Can you imagine? So... uh, Conversation should not be held with a woman, and that's why John 4 was so remarkable. Even though she be one's own, your wife, your, your daughter, it's a waste of time. Um, in fact, here's another quote from the Mishnah. Uh, this is the one right after we just read about, let your house be gathering places for the sages, wallow in the dust of their feet, drinking their words with gusto. Now here's his buddy Yose ben Yohanan of Jerusalem. He adds on to that. He says, let your house be wide open and seat the poor at your table. Good. Generosity, hospitality to the poor. Make, uh, members of your house, make them members of your household. And don't talk too much to women. Don't talk too much to women. And by this, he... Uh, he spoke of a man's wife, all the more so is the rule to be applied to the wife of one's fellow. So your own wife is bad enough, uh, your friend's wife even worse. Um, in this regard, did the sages say, so long as a man talks too much with a woman, first of all, he brings trouble on himself. Secondly, he wastes time that will be better spent studying the Torah. And thirdly, he ends up an heir of Gehenna, a son of hell. All right. <laughs> so, this is uh, this is the attitude. Now, some of these we didn't get to last week. The the man who teaches his daughter the Torah teaches her extravagance. You're actually training her to be extravagant, to be wasteful, to be because just the fact of her learning the Torah is in itself extravagant. There's no need for that. She just needs to keep a house, make babies, and 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 that's it, right? Teaching her the law. Oh, that's extravagant. And you're going to give her those extravagant attitudes. The wife uh, should neither bear witness, uh, instruct children, or pray at table. She is not even bound to keep the whole Torah. Again, her deficiencies, you know, like the men can keep it really all that well. Um, Yeah. In the synagogues, women are assigned special places behind a screen. So not like a pleasant room such as this where you can have, you know, open seating and you can sit by your husband or wherever you want. You can't sit by your husband. Because the men are all in the front room and the women are behind a screen and they don't have the speaker back there like they have in the nursery. <laughs> all right. You've got to listen through the screen and so forth. Special chambers are provided for them, not only in Palestine, but even in Alexandria. And, and Alexandria was a pretty cosmopolitan uh, feminist kind of kind of town. Hellenistic Judaism generally shows little enlightenment on the question. And then there's more quotes here in terms of Philo. And... Um, in the attitude of man is informed by reason. Of course, men are so logical. And women by sensuality. Women are so emotional. Again, you know I'm reading this. I didn't write any of this. All right? The views expressed are not indicative of the one speaking. Finally, um, Josephus' article there, 
if this uh, oh, this is neat. The um, in fact, I've got a new edition of Josephus I can open up for you here uh, about women being inferior. Thus saith the Scripture. Not quite sure what verse, but according to Josephus, he says, "Thus saith the Scripture." Right? It's like Tevye in in in, uh, in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. He says, "As the good book says," and then the guy looks at him. Where does good book say that? <laughs> well, it's not exactly there. But according to Josephus, thus saith the scripture, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. Let her therefore be obedient to him. <laughs> Not so that he should abuse her, but that she may acknowledge her duty to her husband. And it goes on and goes on and so forth. Anyway, the role of leadership and submission is due to the fact that women are just so inferior. And so that's basically what you need to do. All right, so I think for the rest of this, the um, wisdom literature does speak bluntly of uh, issues that women have problems with, including ambition, talkative and disciplined wives, and so forth. There's no shortage of Proverbs there. It does go on, though. Proverbs does go on to discuss the virtuous woman and to discuss the glories of a godly wife and to discuss the blessings and benefits of a man and woman in the Lord that are walking in the light. So um, find it so remarkable that the scriptures can have an exalted view of women, but the rabbinical traditions that come along and just stomp them down and push them back and, and have the, uh, the attitudes that they have. Okay, enough on that. Um, so this was the place to be, but it was not available to women as a rule. Let's talk about Martha's distractions because Martha was distracted. And this uh, is the root of what caused everything else. I mean, there's other things that, that came because of the distractions where she was worried and bothered. But it came because of the distractions. If the distractions had not been there, uh, the worried and bothered wouldn't have happened. All right? The distractions are what we want to avoid. The distractions are what we have uh, admonitions against in the scripture about being distracted, having your mind led astray, for example, from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. This is what, what Paul was writing about when he was warning about, uh, you know, in the same manner that Eve was deceived by the serpent. Believers today can be distracted. Our mind can be led astray. And that's what we want to guard against. So Martha was distracted. Now, here's a fun word. Um, again, and so much of this vocabulary is unique. It is, it is limited to this text, or it's, it's found very rarely in the New Testament. This perispao is one that's, that's uh, unique here to the New Testament. P-E-R-I-S-P-A-O, perispao, number 4049. And it's interesting because it's in the imperfect passive. Uh, it's not just that she was distracted as an heiress distraction, just a punctiliary kind of one-time kind of distraction, but it was a continuous, ongoing distraction. For whatever length of time it was, she was in the home, that, that Jesus was in the home. This could have been all day. It could have been over a number of days. We don't know the, the exact boundaries of the time frame here. Imperfect tense is continuous action in past time. So it's not just a single Martha was distracted. Martha was continuously distracted. Continuously, repeatedly, consistently. And in the passive voice, in the passive voice, meaning that this was being done to her. It was, it was acting upon her. She was receiving the effects of the verb. And there was really no reason for it. There was no reason for it at all. And we'll, we'll see what the antidote is to being distracted. The, attitude, the, the antidote, the provision against distraction is having your mind locked where it's supposed to be in the first place. Because Scripture commands us on where our mind is supposed to be. Uh, we've got a long list of things in Philippians 4.8, for example. You know that verse? Let your mind dwell on these things. And so if we are applying the Word of God and keeping our thinking where it's supposed to be, then that keeps our thinking from being taken in other areas where uh, it shouldn't be, all right? And if your mind is there for very long, um, it doesn't take long before your body follows, right? The thinking precedes the doing. And uh, if, you're, if your mind, if your attitude, if your thoughts are going into these unscriptural realms, 
then that's a very short step to the, the mental attitude sins then that, that are caused in that, in that realm. And then, of course, overt activity follows, follows in turn. So perispao. Perispao, if it's used literally, if it's used physically, it, uh, it would be to, to pull or to drag something. You might pull a boat into the water. You might pull a boat out of the water. You might pull, uh, in a military term, it would be used to pull troops away from a point of battle. All right. Uh, in some respects, it could even be, uh, you know, in terms of a distraction, right? You have a, a fake attack going on over here, and it pulls troops away because they, they get moved over here to attack over here. And what you've just done is you've just, you've just uh, hit your enemy with a distraction because this wasn't the real attack. All you wanted to do was draw the troops over here because the real attack was coming from over here. And uh, thank you very much. We just distracted you and drew the, pulled the troops away, and we're going to have an easier time of it now over here uh, in your less guarded or, or inferior uh, defensive point. Yeah, and the, and to be dragged away, you know, literally or now uh, figuratively, metaphorically, to be dragged away in your mind is what these distractions are. And uh, this is far worse in so many ways than being dragged away physically. Being dragged away in your mind where you're um, daydreaming, you're, you're, you're imagining, you're just drifting. You're not focused on the glory of Christ. You're not occupied with the person of Christ. You're not, uh, you're not letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you because your mind has been dragged away. And whatever it is you find you're thinking about baseball or you're thinking about cars or you're thinking about sports or you're thinking about girls or you're thinking about whatever you're thinking about when, when we're supposed to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. So to have one's attention directed, this is when you're not pulling literally, but you're pulling metaphorically, uh, applying it to the mind. Your mind is dragged away. Have your attention directed from one thing to another. So, in other words, to become distracted, quite busy, overburdened. And what happens is, is when your mind is dragged away and focused on this area here, it's captivating your attention so that you're being actually negligent in the other areas that you should be paying attention to. Like five out of every six drivers in Austin talking on their phones to all the other drivers in Austin. All right. And this is the issue where in, in, uh, they talk about the safety uh, impact on that and the, the factors involved is that your mind is distracted while you're engaged in the conversation. You're thinking in terms of the conversation. Your your mind is with whoever it is you're talking to on the phone and whatever matters you're talking about. And your focus on the, the other idiot drivers around you is, is diminished. Which is why you end up with all these, uh, these, these fender benders. Because if your mind is pulled away and it's held, it's pulled away and held in a particular direction, then you're, uh, you're not focusing on where you should be focusing on. Mary was so di- Martha was so distracted in her preparations that the only thing she could lock her mind on was, uh, were the, the preparations. The, the dishes, the food, the drinks, the, the whatever. And so wrapped up in... In these issues, that the whole point of the fact that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was in her house, <laughs> right? I laugh sometimes because uh, um, folks, uh, church families and folks and members, and you know, you, you invite the pastor over to your house, and and does that change things? You know, you know kids, make sure you're on your best behavior. The pastor's in the house. Right. And make sure uh, you know, it was extra clean or make sure, you know, all this other stuff, you know. Ooh, what if the pastor sees the, the books on my bookshelf and relax. <laughs> but now imagine, OK, this is I'm just illustrating with something goofy that sometimes on occasion uh, believers kind of have interesting thought patterns when the pastor comes in for a visit. OK, probably none. Nobody here would would be worried about anything like that, but it can happen in, in certain circles. And now imagine, if that's goofy, you've got Jesus Christ in your house. <laughs> All right? It's kind of, it's a bad time for, for a temper tantrum. And that's what she's throwing here. She's pouting like a three-year-old. 
My sister won't help me. Right? I mean, this is like three-year-olds, little, little kids. And don't you care? I'll get to that here in a moment. You don't care. We actually uh, did a whole doctrine on caring, and this was one of the verses we looked at. Because it's, it's a mental attitude snare when um, we start to throw the pity party and say, well, God doesn't care. Nobody cares. Nobody loves me. So that's what we have here. Now, the term, we can't go to other New Testament uses to, uh, to get illustrations or examples of this term because it is uh, unique here. But there are some neat ways that, that extra-biblical or non-secular Greek writers use it. And, and Josephus uses this a dozen times or more, I think 20-something times, or 14 times, whatever. Josephus uses this plenty of times. I picked one that was my favorite in uh, describing this. It's a fellow named Malachus, M-A-L-I-C-H-U-S. And Malachus, near as I can tell, Malachus um, hated everybody. Malachus had no friends. Uh, and, and everybody in Malachus' life, from Herod to uh, Antony and everybody, uh, Malachus was just kind of waiting to, to stab somebody else in the back. He just That's just who he was. And so Malachus uh, is... Uh, starts to catch on to some of the schemes against him, suspected that, and was at Tyre. He resolved to withdraw his son privately from among the Tyrians, who was uh, a hostage there, while he got ready to fly away to Judea. The despair he was in of escaping excited him to think of greater things, for he hoped that he should raise the nation to a revolt from the Romans. In other words, his plan at this point was, if he can get those pesky Jews to start revolting against Rome that he might be able to escape in the confusion. All right. So uh, he hoped that he should raise the nation to a revolt from the Romans while Cassius was busy about the war against Antony and that he should easily depose Hyrcanus all right, and then get the crown for himself. So this is uh, while Cassius was busy about the war against Antony. That busy is the use of the term here where we have Martha who was busy, who was distracted in her kitchen and uh, losing track of the fact that, uh, that Jesus Christ was there to teach Bible class. And so this is what can happen. You can get distracted. In some cases, I think this passage helps illustrate it. It's one of the tools of the adversary. He loves to keep us distracted. Because if we're not oriented to the glory of Jesus Christ and the good pleasure of the Father, then we're not effective in accomplishing the Father's plan and purpose through us. We're, we're neutralized in the angelic conflict. Get us distracted. We can't do anything about our salvation. We're a lost cause as far as that goes. He knows that we belong to Christ and that's eternal. He can't stop that. But he can distract us. He can keep us from bearing fruit. keep us from growing. Work his, uh, his uh, things in there that keep us from accomplishing the Father's purpose. He's got no shortage of those uh, distractions, right? They might be women. They might be money. They might be baseball. They might be whatever, okay? I mentioned baseball twice already today, haven't I? All right? Well, it's the off-season. You go into withdrawals about a month after the World Series. That's just that's what you do. Okay. So there's the idea of distraction. Uh, and, it, and like I mentioned earlier, the other military applications of it, if you, if you stage a diversion, a diversionary attack where the enemy thinks this is where the attack's coming from, or you know, the Trojan horse, none of this stuff is, is new. This has been around forever. Uh, another use I find interesting was in the Shepherd of Hermas. Now, this is, again, not biblical, but it was an early Christian writing in the first century after the New Testament was completed. And the principles communicated there were consistent with the biblical principles, I thought, uh, when you related over to 2 Timothy 2.4. Another interesting use. See, the, uh, the early church fathers knew that these distractions were a problem. And even in the New Testament, maybe the exact term wasn't used, but Jesus Christ spoke about the thorny ground soil. And how the distractions, uh, the, the things of this world, can choke out your fruitfulness. So in the Shepherd of Hermas, let me read this. He says, you, though, you therefore bear fruit in order that in summer your fruit may be known. Then he says, but avoid excessive involvement in business and you will commit no sin. 
Involve, uh, avoid excessive involvement in business. See, you know any men that are so wrapped up in their careers in the workplace and they don't have time to take in the Word of God? Well, what are they seeking first? The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. And who cares if you're the biggest uh, business success in the history of Wall Street? Like they got their own issues these days anyway, right? But you can become the biggest business mogul in the world, and what have you sacrificed to gain it? If you've gained the entire world but forfeited your soul. So uh, Hermas goes on to say, uh, for those who are involved in business a great deal, also sin a great deal. <laughs> well, think about it. And it goes on, since they are distracted, that's our term, that's, that's the term that Martha was using, since they are distracted by their business and do not serve their own Lord in anything. They forget the purpose for why they're working. And it becomes a purpose in itself. You know, why, why do you work? What's the point in your career? What, what is it you're doing and why are you doing it? And uh, they think that the business, the, the career itself, the matters of everyday life is what that term is about. Oh, I should have put these up side by side because uh, not only do we have uh, the uh, apostolic fathers there, but we also have the Greek text. We could look at it. We could see our vocabulary, but that's okay. All right. So Martha was busy. Uh, the passage in 2 Timothy 2.4. The passage uh, applies to pastors specifically, but all believers by extension would make application of this, uh, where we're told no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. That's what the shepherd of Hermas was just talking about. Excessive business. And it was choking out fruitfulness and it was actually leading to multiplied sin. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. It's best if you have the full-time professional military. And that's what they do all day, every day, full-time. In any event, I mean, you can supplement with reserve troops and so forth and uh, National Guard components and aspects like that. But the uh, you don't want your mainline army to, uh, <laughs> to be moonlighting because just trying to make ends meet. See, of course, bring it across into the spiritual realm. And uh, how distracted does your pastor come if he's starving to death and he has to uh, take a part-time job, you know, uh, delivering pizzas at night or throwing newspapers in the morning or whatever it is he's doing part-time. Um, the, the, the best provision is when a local church is blessed to the circumstance where they can support their pastor on a full-time basis. You all know that, right? You all made that application in, in 1999 and we continue to rejoice over that. All right, so these are the uses here that help us to uh, understand Martha's distraction. Martha's distraction led her to conclude that the Lord did not care. Martha's distraction led her to conclude that the Lord did not care. It is not a concern to you. It is not a concern to you. You don't care. Now, is this true? Does the Lord care? Of course He cares. There's a hymn in our hymn book that says that too. Does Jesus care? Of course He cares. And the Scriptures testify to His care. The Lord cares is why He came in the flesh. Is why He's living His perfect life. It's why He's headed towards the cross. Because He cares. All right? Because He's obedient to His Father. And the Father cares. But look what happens when you're distracted. When you're distracted, you're not, your thinking is not consistent with God's thinking. And when you're distracted, the words out of your mouth <laughs> aren't consistent with God's thinking. Like it says in the book of Job, the words of a man in despair belong to the wind. Just let the wind carry him on away. Don't bring him back up again. Don't hold it against him. Um... You know, the things that believers say when they're under affliction, when they're under testing, when they're in conflict, 
when a believer is under under uh, spiritual oppression, under under this kind of stress, uh, just identify for what it is and say, oh, <laughs> and know in yourself, okay, know in yourself that if they were in fellowship, they wouldn't be saying such things and wouldn't be entertaining such thoughts. All right probably wouldn't be edifying to throw that back in their face, right? I don't recommend that. Don't, don't look at them and say, you know, if you were in fellowship, you wouldn't say that, okay? Because if they're as carnal as you think they are, then what have you just done, right? So have some grace, have some patience, but also understand. I see Jesus' answer here, Martha, Martha, I see a gentleness. I see a patience. And he's not making excuses for what she's doing, but he is pointing out to her, that uh, her, her being worried and bothered is a consequence and it's not necessary. She could, uh, instead of complaining about what her sister's doing, she could imitate what her sister's doing. And the situation would be a whole lot better. But this distraction leads her to conclude that the Lord doesn't care. You know, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I see so often this is the mentality behind other issues in per- believers' personal lives and marriages and churches and so forth. When, uh, when uh, a husband feels unappreciated because of all his whatever, you know, his hard work and whatever, and well, his wife just doesn't care, right? The hours he's putting in, the stress he's under, the, the, the grief he's getting from his boss, from his supervisor, and he says, oh, she doesn't care. Well... She probably does, but you can't convince him of that. Or turn it around. The wife, of course, is convinced that the husband doesn't care. You know, she's got the kids and she's got all these other things. And, and, and the husband, well, he's so busy working, he's never around, he never talks. So, obviously, he doesn't care. Because if he cared, he'd, he'd talk about it, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it can go either way. The attitude, though, well, this person doesn't care. I just hope that we can spot that as a red flag and realize, you know what? That attitude is actually, in some cases, such as here, is actually an indicator of something else going on. In Martha's case, it was her misplaced priorities and the distractions that resulted. So uh, so too within realms of marriage as well. It may not be the fact that the wife doesn't care or the husband doesn't care, but the, the other party thinks that's the case because of some other mental attitude uh, struggles that, uh, that aren't being handled very well. Thirdly, point C, Martha is abandoned. At least she thinks she is. It's not just that, do you not care my sister has left me? Left me is too nice a way of saying it. I mean, you can be left or you can be utterly left. You can be abandoned all right. You know, I mean, it, isn't it just an, an aspect of how you phrase it? See, I left my wife this morning when I came to church. Well, I did. Was I, I walked out of the house at 530 in the morning and she was still in a bed, you know, in bed sleeping kind of early to get here at six o'clock. But you understand what I mean by I left. I, I'm, I'm going back. <laughs> Church will be over here at 11 and we're going home. And, but if you say it the wrong way or in the right wrong tone of voice or in the wrong context, you say, you left your wife this morning? Okay. And so that's why it helps if you have more forceful terms like abandon. And that's what we have here. Abandon, katalipo. Uh, abandon. It's a forceful term. It is a forceful term. So Martha is really, really feeling it here at this point. Martha, she says, Mary has abandoned me. And she is demanding help. I love the way she does this. Tell her to help me. Right? Like a drill sergeant barking orders to Jesus. You tell her to help me. Again, three-year-old little kids. It's like sisters pulling hair or something, right? Little kids. (laughs) I don't know where these illustrations come from. My daughters never do this. Okay, but tell her to help me. Dad, tell her to do something. Have you figured out yet that her, she doesn't really want an answer to her question? Because she has already made up her mind about the answer to the question. When she says, do you not care, 
That's not a real question. That is a tirade disguised as a question. Do you not care? She's not waiting for his answer. She's going to answer it for him. (laughs) See, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? And then there's no pause. There's no wait. She's not truly even asking a question anyway. She just drives right on because she's already answered it herself. And in her answer, she already knows what the solution is. Tell her, then tell her to help me. So Martha is abandoned and she demands help. She demands help. And the fun thing about this mouthful of Greek, soon anti lambanamai, man, say that five times fast, 4878, it's a double compound again. Soon is a prefix, anti is a prefix. Lambano is to receive uh, in a middle voice. Soon anti lambanamai. There's only two places where it's used here at Romans 826 where we do not always know what to pray for, what to ask for, what to think. But in the same way, the Holy Spirit also helps with our infirmities, with our weaknesses. And I find that interesting. The kind of help Martha was wanting is the kind of help that the Holy Spirit provides when we find ourselves at a loss, when we find ourselves with no answers. And... I just find it remarkable. It's only two places in the New Testament this term is used. is right here with Martha and her her uh, little hissy fit or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and she wants help from her sister. And Romans 8, where we're told, you know what? That help is available. And that help comes anytime we need it. Anytime we need it in the power of prayer. I hope you're familiar with Romans 8.26. You ought to be. You got an email about it yesterday. Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit also, soon antilambanamize, helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. I gave you a prayer request yesterday and you have no clue what it is. No clue what it is. Although uh, Glenn Carnegie thought he could be a super hacker and break into the encrypted code. Good luck. Um, And you don't have to know what it is. That's the best part. All you can do is lift it up with a recognition that the pastor has identified this is something serious and and the body better be praying for it. And let the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ take over from there. Because the Holy Spirit is our prayer helper and Jesus Christ is our prayer intercessor and God the Father is the one who takes all these prayers and answers exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. So there are three members of Trinity actively engaging in these prayer requests that you have no idea what they're even about. And you know what? That's pretty cool. That is absolutely cool. Because there, there is nothing human about that. Nothing. You understand how in prayer we get to enter into God's omniscience? Not that we get to become omniscient, but because we leave it with his omniscience to know what's best. So we get to become partakers in omniscience by going to the Father in prayer and saying, All right, Father, you know what's best. Take care of this. And we get to enter into omnipresence because we can only be at one place at one time. But prayer is an answer for that, too, because I can go to prayer and I can be all over the globe in prayer. I get to become omniscient and omnipresent in prayer. And then I get to become omnipotent in prayer. Not that I myself have the power, but I get to go to prayer to the Father who has all the power. I get all the omni-attributes when I'm in prayer. That is such a glorious thing. So the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, helps soon anti-lumbanamai, our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep, for words. All right, this is the kind of help. It's the word, anyway. It's not the kind of help Martha wanted. Martha wanted uh, kitchen help. What she needed was the Holy Spirit's prayer intercession. All right. Now, the Lord's rebuke. We wrap it up with point four. The Lord's rebuke to Martha. And there's so much teaching in these two verses. 
But it does come down to the contrast between the so many and the one. And if we have priorities aligned properly, then it takes care of itself. If we're misdirected, there is no answer. There's no answer at all. You are worried and bothered. <laughs> worried and bothered. It's like being sick and tired. You are worried and bothered. M-E-R-I-M-N-A-O. Mary Manao. M-E-R-I-M-N-A-O. Mary Manao. And Ameris, Ameris is a division. Like we have the, the meridians, uh, the, the divisions of the globe in terms of the, the longitudinal lines, right? Meridians, there's a prime meridian and so forth. Uh, Ameris is a division and you have a division of thinking. Worry is a division of thinking. So Mira Manao, number 3309. Not only is she worried, she's also bothered. These are fun word studies. I'm not taking the time this morning to take you into, into them. I gave you a little bit of Josephus on one of them earlier. But you know, there's, there's some neat things you can do with these terms. But I think just simply for our purposes today, between uh, Merimanao and Thorubazo, T-H-O-R-U-B-A-Z-O, Thorubazo, number 5182. Um, can we all agree that these are, these are bad? <laughs> right? That this is unacceptable in the Christian way of life? Jesus Christ didn't... Does the scripture say, I have come that thou might be worried and bothered? <laughs> no. Hey, you might have life and you might have it in abundance. The outworking of our faith on a daily basis as we're living in the Word of God uh, takes care of this. Absolutely takes care of this. And if you're finding this behavior or this mindset or attitude is becoming more and more frequent, then that's, that's an indicator. That's a warning sign. It's a red flag. Say, wait a minute. I'm not occupied or I'm supposed to be occupied. I'm being the Martha instead of the Mary. I'm so busy in life, I should be sitting at his feet taking in the Word of God. And uh, give it a try. See how it works. <laughs> Occupy with Christ. Get in the Word of God. And you'll note, as your thinking is renewed, your mind is transformed, you will note uh, that these episodes of uh, worry and bothersomeness, uh, they diminish. They become fewer and further between. So she, uh, the Lord says, you are worried and bothered. But the real contrast, though, is in the sheer number of things. You know, people that, that are running 100 miles an hour, 100 different directions... Okay. Does that ever stop? Does that ever stop? You know what? There's always one more thing you could add to it. There's always one more thing. There's always one more thing. And you say, well, one of these days I'm going to slow down. No, you're not. No, you're not. Not unless you have a total reevaluation of your thinking of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because so long as the attitude remains where it is, you're not going to slow it down. You're just going to add one more thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. The contrast here, so many worrisome, bothersome, and distracting things are a co sharp contrast with the one necessary thing. The one necessary thing. If that one thing is taken care of, everything else is details. Circumstances and details of life. If the one item is kept in perspective. So many Worrisome, bothersome, and distracting things are a sharp contrast with one necessary thing. One necessary thing. And, you know, there's, there's businesses out there that use this as a business model. Say, okay, we're going to do one thing. And that one thing we're going to do as best as we can, Right? And maybe it's a, whatever, you know, a restaurant says, you know what, we're not going to do these 110 different kind of items on the menu. We're going to have one thing on our menu. Anybody that comes in here, we don't have to ask them what they want, because that's what we're giving them. <laughs> one thing. The only thing we need to know is how many of that one thing they want, because that's all we're doing. See. Or any, it could be any 
type of business. If they focus on one thing and decide they're going to they're going to major on that one item, they can get really good at it. As opposed to all these other things where you can end up with distractions. And that's our contrast. Now Martha's distraction, point C, Martha's distraction was a mental dragging. Her mind was dragged away from where it should have been. You know, I, I suspect her mind was, was right when she invited him. I suspect. I mean, I, there's, there's no reason to doubt, to doubt that. There's nothing in the text that indicates it wasn't. Uh, he came into her village. She welcomed him. The full verb there is a, is a gracious welcoming. She welcomed him into her home. And there is not a glimmer of indication in the text that, that her thinking was wrong at that point. So where did it go wrong? She had the right motivation to start with and then lost track of what the real issue was. So Martha's distraction was a mental dragging. By so many things, she lost sight of the one necessary thing. And here's your definition. What is the one necessary thing? Orientation to the person of Jesus Christ. Orientation to the person of Jesus Christ. That was what Mary locked in on. She knew whose feet she was sitting at. Orientation to the person of Jesus Christ. This is where a pastor can go wrong. We've got a big ordination week. This is all the celebrations of this and all the things that go into the training and the preparation and the, and the, the laying on of hands and all the neat things. And uh, a pastor, no matter how well trained, no matter how well prepared, no matter what else he does, if he loses track of his orientation to the person of Jesus Christ, what kind of ministry is he going to have? He's going to forget whose church it is. He'll start thinking it's his church. Uh-uh. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. Uh, any human beings here, we're, we're just earthly shepherds, under shepherds, as it were. Uh, being faithful to the flock allotted to our charge, but it's the chief shepherd. Can't lose track of that. You allow the mental distractions to take you away from the one necessary thing, then you lose the orientation to the person of Jesus Christ. And it's, uh, it's, it's darkness after that. Being worried, being bothered, uh, being distracted. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul is the uh, illustration of this, where he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's not lose track of our orientation to Jesus Christ because it's only in Christ, by the grace of God, we are what we are and we do what we do. If you lose track of the one important thing and get distracted by all these other things, <laughs> then you call your pastor and say, Pastor, <laughs> I have these problems. Please wave your magic wand. Every pastor has a magic wand, you know. Just wave it and problems go away. It's great. Do you believe me? No. You'd think from some of the phone calls I get, I'm like, man, maybe I do have a magic wand. What is it you want me to do again? <laughs> so Friday night we'll be giving Cliff his magic wand and then he'll be able to just make problems go away. It's great. Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away. She has chosen the good part. And the good part is to occupy with her Savior, to listen during the time of His teaching. You know, there's, there's a time and a place. Like Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time and a place. We can do the dishes. We can fix the dinner. But can that wait until class is over with? You know, can that wait until class is over with? And so, two quick things. Her focus on the one necessary thing produced no distraction, no worry, no bother. You realize that? Mary has no distractions, no worries, no bothers. Now, she has a, a hen-pecking sister, but that's not even bothering her. You realize that? Martha was absolutely livid over what Mary was doing. Mary wasn't at all bothered by Martha's nagging and slander and, and, and criticism and, 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 and any of that. I find that interesting. She never responds. She never speaks out. She never defends herself. She doesn't jump up and say, uh, you know, well, I did breakfast. It's her turn to do lunch. She doesn't jump into the thing and, and argue back. She just stays seated the whole time. Mary becomes the illustration of Isaiah 
And I've got to leave you with this. I'm out of time, and I'm also out of slides. That's the end of the class. But she becomes the illustration of Isaiah 26.3. What's Isaiah 26.3? Perfect peace, who's, who's running around in the kitchen like a chicken with her head cut off, whose mind is stayed on thee. Yeah, Mary was Isaiah 26.3. Martha was not. I think that's pretty clear. All right. You guys know way too much scripture. That's great. Yeah. Makes it easy to teach. You just know it all ahead of time. That's great. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, and for the abundant blessings you pour forth, grace upon grace. Uh, we do lift up uh, all these matters that are uh, ongoing uh, this particular week, especially. Uh, hedge us about, Father. Uh, we recognize a, an event such as this draws the attention of the, uh, of the adversary, who certainly would not like to see something like this take place. Uh, Father, I also lift up my dad and his process today, that's in your hands, and I, I do pray for that as well. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for having a plan that that uh, that you faithfully ex- execute from Alpha to Omega for the glory of your Son. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.